Preventable medical errors are the third leading cause of death in America behind cardiovascular disease and cancer. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. In the book, which is titled The Evidence-Based Practice, Competencies in Healthcare, there's a quote on page 145. It's one of my favorite, and it says, even if clinicians are skilled in evidence-based decision-making and the seven-step process, if they do not work in a culture or an environment often referred to as context, where evidence is integrated into structure of the organization to support them, to deliver evidence-based care, their efforts are not likely sustained. My name is Todd Urey. I'm the founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I have an extremely special guest today, one of my heroes in evidence-based practice and, and, and where we're going in today's discussion will be about content development. I want to introduce Dr. Bernadette Melnick uh, to the Pharmacy Podcast. Welcome, Bernadette. Thank you. I'm delighted to join you today. I was so excited when you um, were able to schedule this interview because, as I said, I'm 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 a content developer. I'm a publisher, and I cater. And my entire world is to deliver good information to pharmacy students and pharmacists who specialize in community practice, in geriatrics, specialty disease states, pharmacogenomics, compounding, and pharmacists work in in such highly delicate medication-specific information that as someone who develops podcasts and audio, I believe that um, as content developers, we have to level up. We have to take what we're developing to a whole nother uh, level than the 1.7 million podcasts that are out there right now. And I just wanted to interview you about this book and about the competencies in healthcare and, and what you've developed. And I just want to take a pause and, 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 and give our uh, listeners a little background on yourself and, and where, um, where, where you got involved in developing evidence-based practice um, information. Yes, so I've been banging the drum for evidence-based practice since the late 90s. I, at the time, was research dean and director of our Center for Research and Evidence-Based Practice at the University of Rochester. And I was so just taken by the fact that all these awesome evidence-based practices were being published, but so little of them were being used every day in clinical practice to improve outcomes. So it was that point in time 
I really became passionate about my framework. And that's in God we trust, but everybody else better bring data to the table. And if you look at how much money this country invests in research, but how little of it ever gets translated to the bedside to improve care and outcomes, it's abysmal. You know, for years we said it takes 17 years to translate findings from research into clinical practice to improve outcomes. I always say that 17 years, if you're blessed, most researchers never see a lifetime of research work make it to the real world to improve outcomes. So you're vice president of health promotion and university chief wellness officer and dean of college of nursing for the Ohio State University. How has your belief in evidence-based practice impacted you as someone to, to carry these beliefs and push this um, this process and the, um, the practice of evidence-based medicine um, throughout the university? Well, I had the pioneering opportunity to become the first chief wellness officer at a university in the country. That was a dream that I actually pitched to Ohio State. But I made the pitch with evidence. So I always tell everybody, you want to negotiate successfully, you got to do it with the best evidence. But that was the philosophy that I brought to Ohio State. Ohio State had already been doing a lot of good things in wellness, but people were kind of siloed in pockets and there wasn't a big team vision and a strategic plan around this. So that's one of the first things we did. And I told the team, whatever we do, we're gonna do it based on best evidence. We know, for example, based on research, If you really want to improve population health outcomes, you got to deliver evidence-based interventions to the grassroots people in the organization, to the middle managers and supervisors, your top leaders and your system. But evidence-based, all these Studies also say you have to do this in a culture of wellness that makes healthy behaviors the norm. So I always say culture does eat strategy for breakfast, lunch, Hmm. and dinner. But again, we still talk about, Todd, quality improvement. 
And if you go to every hospital system in the country, there are directors of quality improvement, not evidence-based quality improvement. So a lot of quality improvement is going on in the healthcare systems throughout the country, but it's leaders getting in a room, identifying a problem they have, throwing a bunch of spaghetti up on the wall and saying, oh, we'll go with that because it's stuck <laughs> without a thorough review of the evidence, a critical appraisal, a synthesis of that evidence to know what's the best that we can be doing here. And then here's the question I always get, as I've done so much consulting and teaching with healthcare systems throughout the country, people will ask me, Burn, when do we make that practice change? And I always tell people, we make it when we know. That is, when you do a good critical appraisal and synthesis of the evidence, so you know it's high quality. Then you got to immediately make that practice change. We're still doing so many things because that's the way we've always done that. Right. In fact, I've got a button and I should be wearing it today that says, because we've always done it that way with a slash through it, we've got to de-implement what is not evidence-based and instead replace it with what we know is evidence-based. I met with a legislator right before the pandemic hit. And this legislator said to me on the hill, Bern, don't tell me we need new, more money. You need more money because there's no more money we're going to be giving out. But what do we do with the money we have? I said, I have a simple solution for you. Not easy, but simple. To de-implement, extinguish all this, these programs that don't work, that's not evidence-based and replace them with those that are evidence-based. It's, it's simple but it's not easy because a lot of this is culture change. Mm -hmm. And unless you have leader investment in this, because the C-suite in healthcare is gonna get a big ROI and value of investment if they invest in getting evidence-based practice into the DNA of all their practicing clinicians. So simple, but not easy. Absolutely. Amen. And I believe in, in what you wrote and what was written in that book um, with your colleagues, that if you're not able to apply 
then how will we ever assure that what has been proven through evidence-based studies is in fact continuing to work based on the changes that are happening in our biology, which, which are happening in DNA based on sometimes there's cancers in place that change that DNA. And I think of, you know, pharmacy is a very dynamic profession. Um, and the role of the pharmacist is improving with the expansion of technology and the scope of services and the introduction of new specialties over time. Um, you know, moving from medication dispensers to now becoming outcome-oriented, patient-focused providers, how patients were going to carry more responsibility and commitment to improve their knowledge and practice, that has to be centered. It must be embedded in evidence-based practice in order to carry and in order to become leaders in, in healthcare and in life sciences and in medicine. So I've read your book, I'm on my second time through it and it was hard to read it the first time um, because it's just, you know, it's, it's a very clinical driven way of thinking a book. It's not really filled with anything clinical, but it's definitely filled with structure as to how to think as a, someone practicing evidence-based medicine. And so the reason that I brought you on and the reason why I was so excited to talk with you is the fact that I believe as someone who has been podcasting since 2009 uh, for pharmacists, that anyone that is in content development in healthcare as a nurse practitioner or as a physician or a physician student or as a pharmacy student or pharmacist, they must practice if they're going to be outlining disease states, if they're going to be outlining outcomes or discussions, they have to practice evidence-based content development so that they can continue to circle back to the journal articles and circle back um, to, the, to the lectures that they've been a part of and being able to reference information. So with I'm developing clinical focused podcasting, we know that when we listen to those podcasts that they've, they have an opportunity to be vetted and to be assured and to make sure that when we're working even with drug manufacturers to develop a non-biased evidence-based information for physician and pharmacists, that we're following some kind of barometer, we're following some kind of equal plain common denominator. And I just wanted to get your opinion on what I'm calling evidence-based content development. You know, what do you think of something like that? I think it's very much so needed. Now, we've got to remember, let's take nursing, for instance. The average age of a nurse in this country is 47, 48 years of age. They didn't grow up with evidence-based practice. They grew up with what we call research utilization, which is different than evidence-based practice. But it kills me to this day. Let's think about this fact. We spend more money on healthcare than any Western world country, but we rank near the bottom in the health outcomes. Hmm. Preventable medical errors are the third leading cause of death in America behind cardiovascular disease, 
and cancer. A lot of those deaths are due because people, good, caring, well-meaning clinicians are not following best evidence-based guidelines. For instance, the United States is the worst um, modern world country to deliver a baby in. Can you believe that? 700 women die every year in childbirth due to some type of complications. But a major root cause of those deaths is because, again, well-meaning clinicians are not following evidence-based guidelines for how to deal with hemorrhage or high blood pressure. It's, it's really a travesty. And some of this, Todd, is because behavior change is what I call character building. Mm. Most people don't change behavior unless crisis happens or their emotions are raised. So believe me, I teach evidence-based practice and I have for decades now, but I always combine evidence plus emotion, because this is behavior change for a lot of clinicians. A lot of clinicians did not grow up to learn the steps of evidence-based practice, and there's still so many barriers throughout our healthcare system. I did a national study that I published a few years ago it was the state of evidence-based practice throughout the United States. And we found it was abysmally low. And one of the questions that was asked on our survey was what is the one biggest thing that prevents you from implementing evidence-based practice? Number one, misperception. I don't have time to do it. Number two, organizational culture. That's the way we do it here. But number five was failure of managers, supervisors, and leaders to support evidence-based practice. That blew my mind. So Elsevier contacted me when we published that study and said, this upsets us. Why wouldn't managers and supervisors not support and provide their people with the tools and the resources to practice based on best evidence? So we did another national study with executives chief nurse executives all throughout the country to delve into this problem more. We asked them, what are your top priorities right now for your hospital, your healthcare system? Not surprising, they said quality and safety was number one and number two. 
But at the bottom of the priority list was the evidence-based practice. And we had the biggest aha moment. We said, these execs want quality and safety, but what they don't realize is evidence-based practice is the direct pathway to get their hospital, their healthcare system to quality and safety. In fact, I always tell people, evidence-based practice plus clinician well-being equals the quadruple aim in healthcare. Hmm. We're not gonna get to the quadruple aim without those two very important strategies. That's incredible. So how do you think pharmacists can adopt an evidence-based driven practice of their own based on what they know as the medication experts? They do have their medispans. They have the ability to see what is drug-drug and drug allergy and drug-food interaction. They understand titration up, titration down of specific, very sensitive medications. But I'm wondering, how do we increase the awareness for the need for the healthcare professional, the pharmacist to adopt an evidence-based approach to that daily practice as a medication expert? I think again, combining the evidence, we know evidence-based practice leads to so much better outcomes. There's so much research that shows that. Plus clinicians who practice in an evidence-based way feel more empowered and more satisfied in their jobs because face it, turnover is an issue in every single profession. Burnout, mm -hmm. I serve on the National Academy of Medicine's Action Collaborative on clinician well-being and resilience right now. We are looking and developing evidence-based solutions to tackle this problem of burnout, depression, and suicide in physicians, in nurses, in pharmacists. So again, you've got to start, you've got to make your case with evidence and emotion. Then you've got to get people the skills because a lot of people think, again, I don't have time to do this. This is too exhausting. But we teach at our Helene Full National Institute for Evidence-Based Practice at The Ohio State University. We hold five-day boot camps in evidence-based practice. We have MDs, pharmacists, respiratory therapists, nurses really come to learn the steps of EBP and how they can do it in the real world in an efficient way. And then it's got to start in the academic programs. Students need faculty who truly know how to teach this mm. because there's still a lot of schools out there 
that teach people the rigorous process of how to conduct research versus the steps of evidence-based practice and how to do it in a time-efficient way. That's incredible. Um, we have got to have you back and unpack so much more, Bernadette. You've been a beaming light to me in, in developing more evidence-based driven discussions and audio publications that I absolutely believe in. And like I said, I, I consider the EBP, this book, as almost like the guidance um, for me to actually continue to develop um, those audio um there's audio pieces and in podcasts and discussions and, you know, care interventions. Um, they can just no longer be based on, a, on, like you said, on opinion or individual experience alone. There's that scientific evidence data that's out there. We have so much data at our fingertips built up from that good quality research that has already um, been documented as a guide to adapt and, and develop each individual patient's circumstance. And we know that uh, so many sciences and so many leverages and new tools that are coming out, including pharmacogenomics, as that new innovative concept um, based on evidence, based on the pharmaceutical care that seems um, and is uh, so promising in practice to improve the quality of those pharmaceutical care outcomes. Um, so I encourage all health system, all clinical, all community specialty pharmacists to adapt disseminate and promote um, the concept to improve pharma this pharmacy profession and be more focused on studies and research and needing to establish um, a marketplace, a, a, a belief, um, a brother and sisterhood that this concept needs to be part of a daily pharmacy practice. Um, Bernadette, I, I thank you so much for being here for this first of many interviews that we're going to do in discussing um, evidence-based practice, um, not only in pharmacy, but in, in collaborative care. And, and I think we should get some nurses and pharmacists um, to come together and, and build out these discussions. Absolutely, couldn't agree with you more. Thanks for having me on your podcast. I appreciate the opportunity to get the word out more on evidence-based practice. Absolutely. Thank you. We were talking with Dr. Bernadette Melnick. She is Vice President of Health Promotion and University Chief Wellness Officer at The Ohio State University. And as always, I thank you so much for listening to The Pharmacy Podcast. Mm -hmm.